and the students at the end scored 15% higher on their exams than those that use the traditional curriculum. Did scan a QR code and up would pop this animated version of a British soldier and he'd be like, hello, welcome to this part of the Martello Tower. I mean, Betty White post-tweeted about it and everybody really? loved Betty White. Yes. Yeah, I think even you're saying really. Well, imagine everyone in LA, they're going, really? Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... So we're envisioning basically a, a Pokemon Go for, for climate change. I think we have underestimated for a long time, we as adults, the power of games to bring people together to collaborate, to exchange ideas, to explore, discover, to feel empowered. And so we need to harness the goodness in games to help us be part of the solution for some of these really challenging and very serious issues. You're an agent on a mission. Well, at least it feels that way. You've taken this autumn walk many times before, but never like this. Today, you have a specific set of challenges to complete as part of a customized mission on the Agents of Discovery app. Mary Clark is the founder and CEO of Agents of Discovery. She virtually met with Ian for a wide-ranging discussion about how mobile apps and augmented reality can be used to connect people to the outdoors in engaging and meaningful ways. Agents of Discovery is described as a free educational mobile gaming platform that uses augmented reality or AR. Now, what is the ultimate or underlying purpose of this platform? Well, Ian, that is an excellent question because when people hear the tech term augmented reality, they assume this is some sort of shallow game or Pokemon Go or something. But right. in reality, this gaming platform is intended to allow students to get out of doors, move to learn and experience nature in real time. We know that the best science STEM environmental learning happens out of doors and within the context of the community. So a mobile gaming platform like this allows learners to be out of doors and experience nature in real time. I, I, I just can't underscore how important it is that learners are out of doors as part of their K to 12 education. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that over time, we are going to start to grab onto this, that if we want young people to care about the environment, to connect with the environment, to love the environment, to understand the environment, they're going to need to spend a significant amount of time, school time, out of doors. 
because nature is very dynamic, even in places, outdoor environments like schoolyards, there's nature to be seen and experienced. And that's the magic of a platform like this. Uh, there's other layers, and we'll talk about the AR piece, but primarily the fact that it is mobile and allows learners to be out of doors and moving to learn is really, really critical. So is that is that a good start? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. And this hasn't come from nowhere. This is based on reams of research. And a lot of this goes back to your work as the director of the Get to Know program, uh, where you worked alongside Robert Bateman. Can you take us into that side of things and kind of where this entire journey began? Okay, well, absolutely. And, and uh, it, it really began with a project that Mr. Bateman and I worked on together back in the late 90s to reintroduce Adam Peregrine Falcons into the interior of British Columbia. Mm. And we met through that program and I learned about Mr. Bateman's passion for getting kids out of doors. Um, he, he really, really believes in the importance of kids getting to know the names of their neighbors of other species. That's why we named it the Robert Bateman Get to Know Program. And we really connected around that idea of figuring out how we could get kids excited about nature and getting to know their, their other species in their community and all that great stuff. So through the course of our work, which really began around 2000 for a decade, we were very focused on getting kids off screens. <laughs> That's yeah. the irony of this. Uh -huh. And doing art, of course, you know, the creative arts are very important. Sketching, uh, Mr. Bateman talks a lot about, you know, and everyone can paint not everyone can paint I mean but everyone can sketch they can learn to pay attention it's all about paying attention to nature yeah. and you know so we were we were very focused on on those sort of things which I would really from today's perspective say we're kind of old-fashioned but we were really <laughs> doing our very best and I mean you know just really wanted kids off of screens out hiking and all the wonderful things and th those aren't old-fashioned we we all enjoy those to this day but getting kids to paint and so on became fairly challenging over the course of the years that we were working together and we were able to do some studies with uh, primarily the biggest one that comes to mind is the one with Dr. Patricia Winter from the Pacific Southwest Research Station in California, because we, we expanded into the U.S. fairly quickly. Mm. And her research team took a look at what we were doing and concluded that if we could find a way to take a screen experience out of doors so that it was experienced in real time, that it would be extremely effective. And ironically, this study was published in 2007. I mean, the first, right around the time the first iPhone was hitting the market. Yeah. And it dawned on me, well, we can make this happen. We can have, because I mean, you're, you're, iPhone is like your computer in your pocket. I mean, with the mobile devices, we will be able to accomplish that. So that was sort of the beginning of the irony that although we had undertaken to get kids into the woods and off of screens, their 
overwhelming love and attraction to screens drew us to the conclusion that we were actually going to need screens to accomplish our greater goal of getting kids meaningfully connected to nature. So that, that study of Dr. Winters was really the beginning of the journey. Yeah, so that, that was sort of how things evolved over time. Yeah, sort of two things occur to me with that. On one hand, of course, as you mentioned, there's this delicious irony of one of the ways to get kids off screens is to use screens. And that's the kind of thing you would maybe see written on Twitter. But it speaks to the necessity of having nuance in these discussions. And as you just described, of course, there's a lot more nuance to just this very simplified reduce screen time by increasing screen time, which of course is misleading. The other thing that occurs to me is myself as somebody who likes to go out into nature and look for birds and insects and plants. I always grew up with a field guide. I often, when I went to a park, would read the trail guides as I went. There would be numbered guideposts along a trail and there would be an interpretive guide that at each guidepost would explain, you know, here you are looking at a fallen maple tree that was struck by lightning so-and-so many years ago. It really isn't so different from having a field guide or a guidebook in your hand when you kind of break it down and think about it. That's right, Ian. It's a 2021 version of that. Yeah. That makes sense to digital natives who are the our target audience here. And I don't think we've lived in a time where educators are as far removed from their target audience as they are now. And that's not anyone's fault. It's just the world is changing so quickly. And a generation in tech is three years. So when you're trying to address 10 year olds, and even if you're relatively young, like you're 30, you're seven generations away. So when you get to be 50, (laughs) over Mm -hmm. 50, like I am, all of a sudden, it's really not a generational gap, it's a chasm. They're living in a different world. And I, I am seeing this every day that we're having to bridge that gap and help all the wonderful educators that are so dedicated, uh, whether it's in state parks or provincial parks or city parks, and want to reach the kids, helping them understand the tech and work with the tech and believe that it's worth it because of what it means to the kids to be able to have something delivered to them in their own language. So I I think you're making a very good point that it is like a field guide. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember, oh, I was so excited because interpretive signs came out in the 80s. (laughs) And I was like, oh, yay, I read every sign. You know, the the signs were kind of new because my family, when I was growing up in the 70s, we there weren't a lot of signs, at least in the national parks that we we visited in Alberta. And when they came out, it was really pretty cool. Mm -hmm. So the world has changed in, you know, I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, I think you're making a good point. And to your first point, Ian, the rewards are critical because you are right. Like our goal isn't to get kids more into tech. I mean, it would almost be impossible anyways. <laughs> our goal is to allow them. It's like any basic reward system. I started my career as a teacher and, you know, in the classrooms, I had rewards that were in and of themselves, not of a tremendous amount of value. I, I just had things like, 
the spelling king and different rewards, but the rewards were there so that students could experience success and ultimately discover that doing well felt good or, you know, learning was fun. So the rewards are a means to an end. So it, it, it's kind of that sort of philosophy, like they're having fun using the tech that they love and then they notice, oh, wow, this, you, you and I were talking a little earlier about an acorn woodpecker. You know, if they see one in, in one of our uh, California missions, wow, this bird is amazing. They, they, they drop the game. They're connecting with the bird. Like that's the moments that we're after. And, and I remember in the early days when we were testing a prototype of this at the Calgary Zoo. This is, this is more than, this is like a decade ago. And we had set up a draft, like a prototype mission or game, augmented reality game in the Canadian section of the Calgary Zoo, if any of your listeners have been there. And there's an aviary. And one of the things that the players had to do was find the snowy owl and mm -hmm. figure out what color eyes the snowy owl had. And so the, the, the kids were all running around trying to find one of them found the snowy owl. And of course, he was facing the wrong way, and they're all peering. Finally, he turned around. They're like, wow, look at those beautiful yellow eyes. And, they, and it was just one of those magical moments where I went, that is it. And the educator that was with me at the time, who was an employee of the zoo, said, I have never seen the kids this age looking around in the aviary. They normally just run right through it. And wow. I thought, wow, that, that's the kind of moments that we're trying to create because once you have looked into the eyes of a snowy owl, you're going to be changed, right? You're going to remember that. And, and that's the kind of connections that we're trying to make. Does that make sense to you, Ian? Most definitely. And I mean, that kind of anecdote just explains it, you know, if they've always just run around and not really stopped to notice, getting them to actually stop and notice whether you're using a screen or not to accomplish that if you get to your end goal, isn't that the point? That is the point. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-backed issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. Your first challenge is to find evidence of acorn woodpeckers. Well, that's easy. Their holes are all over the biggest oak tree along this path. You've known that for years. Now, you went back to school at one point. How did that orient you more towards where you are now with Agents of Discovery? After Mr. Bateman stepped down from Get to Know in 2012, I went back to UBC and I uh, did my, my master's degree in educational technology, specifically in the use of augmented reality to enhance STEM learning, like science, technology, engineering, and math. And it was amazing to discover that although augmented reality gaming was coming out at the time, there were, it wasn't being used by educators. And, and I, I was kind of, 
in, and there were web-based games that were, you know, in the classroom, like uh, Quest Atlantis was one of the best ones. Dr. Susan Barber from the University of Arizona had done a really excellent longitudinal study on testing the efficacy of this and the kids, it was for social studies and the kids had to solve all these challenges or Atlantis was gonna sink into the sea. It was this huge big gaming narrative. Mm -hmm. And the students at the end scored 15% higher on their exams than those that use the traditional curriculum. So it was clear gaming works, it gets kids engaged, it creates new meaning for them, you know, and, and so I really got the idea, like we, we, we need to be looking at this because I remember Dr. Barber said, the tragedy is that those that control augmented the gaming industry and a subset of that is ARGs had no vested interest in the well-being of players. Right. And I remember reading that and going, wow, that's it. What we're trying to do is put those sort of tools into the hands of people who do have a vested interest in the well-being of the players so that they can use that technology. If the kids love it, why don't we use it to accomplish what we want, which is kids more active, more connected to the environment, spending more time out of doors, loving nature, getting involved in protecting the planet, all the actions that we are after as environmental educators. Let's use the tools that, that seem to work. So we were able um, to undertake a study through the MyTax program. Are you familiar with MyTax, Ian? I've just heard of it. I, I don't know it in depth. Yeah, very great uh, Canadian granting program where universities partner with private and or government entities to undertake research. And so the study was led by Dr. Mark Holder from UBC Okanagan. Um, I helped coordinate the players. I wasn't directly involved in any of the research or certainly the analysis of the data collected. But the partners were the City of Calgary and the school board, Calgary Public Board of Education and UBC, and Dr. Holder, who is interested in happiness psychology, which was kind of cool. He wasn't an mm -hmm. environmental educator, undertook a study with one of his PhD grad students with three different types of learning. But they were all going to learn the same stuff. One was going to be mm -hmm. with brochures and maps. One with using a gaming, sort of a prototype of what Agents of Discovery is today, and one to be led by a very experienced City of Calgary naturalist. And so the students arrived from the same school on the same bus, very important, right? Yep. And then they were randomly assigned, random assignment, also critical, to a group when they arrived at the park. And there were 17 schools, 750 students in this study. It was a big sample size. And then they did pre and post testing on content retention, but some more interesting things like connectedness to nature and sense of conservation ethic. And I remember attending this symposium. It took them 16 months to collect all the data, analyze it. And Dr. Holder uh, released the results of the symposium at UBC Okanagan in late 2014, early 2015. And I remember sitting just thunderstruck because we could have predicted that the kids would rate the gaming experience as more fun. I mean, that was not a surprise. Sure. But the content retention was statistically higher. Even the connectedness to nature and the sense of conservation ethic was higher for the group that played the game. 
And I walked out of that auditorium going, you know, I've got to do something about this. And really that was the genesis. That's, we founded Agents of Discovery in May, 2015. Very much based because I, to this day, if the, if the study had shown, well, the kids in the gaming group had more fun, but they, they did not do as well in all these other really important matrices, I think I would have said, forget it. But it was just, it laid a path in that we needed to do this because those, these educators, you know, if we want kids connecting with, with the environment and getting with the program and understanding where we're going and that they need to get involved, we have got to make sure that the people educating them have the best tools, the most engaging tools. You know, why should the gaming industry have those that is only interested really? I mean, I don't want to too much dump on the gaming industry, but there are a lot of downsides because yep. kids tend to be sedentary. They tend to just have narratives that have nothing to do with education at all. I mean, Pokemon Go was great because at least it got kids out of doors, but the narrative was just meaningless in terms of promoting anything to do with the environment. Of course. So that was just the genesis. That, that's how it started. And you know, we founded Agents of Discovery based on the results of that study in May 2015 and just haven't stopped since then. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. What you didn't know was that the tree where a group of acorn woodpeckers stores acorns is known as a granary tree, and it can have as many as 50,000 holes. Let's move on to what a mission is like with Agents of Discovery. Yeah, absolutely. A mission is a term we use because what do agents do? They go on missions. That's sort of yeah. part of our narrative. And a mission is really an AR game. And going back to your earlier comment, Ian, it's like a, a series of, of signs that, or experiences that you would have as you go along a trail in a park instead of reading a sign or a brochure or something, you're actually solving an, a, an augmented reality challenge that unlocks when you get to that particular location, that, that it's geo-triggered content. So the, the people at the park who are setting up the missions determine where you will be able to experience each of the challenges. They not only place them, but they set the geofence around them. And it might be five meters or it might be 25 meters. But once you're in that spot, you're going to unlock this challenge that's part of your mission and solve it. And so the mission then is solving all of the challenges and then you have completed the mission. So it's mission accomplished, sort of an old fashioned term <laughs> for yeah. the adventures or something. You know, it's that that's really what a mission is all about is solving a series of challenges that link location to learning. And for the digital non-natives, and I would consider myself in that group as well, how does the augmented reality manifest for the players while they're playing the games? Well, for the digital immigrants, and I'm one too, if you're born before 74, you're part of the <laughs> digital immigrant club. A lot of it has to do with the intergenerational piece 
you know, you as either a parent or a grandparent are with a child or a grandchild and you're playing as a team, right? Yeah. So the kids will have the tech down pat, but you can get involved in what the challenge is because it may be something like you, you mentioned Ian, you're an experienced birder. If one of your kids were doing a mission, they were getting asked questions about you know, birds or raptors or something, you would be quite knowledgeable on that and be able to participate in the game. And this is, we get this kind of feedback all the time is, yay, this is something, a game I can play with my kids because if you try to play with them on some of the games, you know, like StarCraft, you know, we're digital immigrants and we just can't move that fast and we get stressed and it's not fun. But a game like this allows for that intergenerational interaction that, it, it, it is fun and helps connect families. The intergenerational component is huge. And it also goes against this potential suggestion that this is just wandering around staring at your screen. No, in fact, there's a lot of discussion involved. And I can speak to this from personal experience. My one and only venture into the world of augmented reality was at <laughs> Quebec City. It was at the Plains of Abraham. And uh, my wife and I were touring around and we went to a Martello Tower uh, overlooking the St. Lawrence River. Yeah. And we were given iPads and we would have to scan QR codes at certain points within this Martello Tower. And I believe it was John Cleese who voiced the sort of avatar character who was along with us. If it wasn't John Cleese, it was somebody else quite famous from England, a famous actor. And as you yeah. would go to the different areas, you'd scan a QR code and up would pop this animated version of a British soldier. And he'd be like, hello, welcome to this part of the Martello Tower. You are now going to proceed downstairs. And it was very interactive and it generated discussion. And we didn't have kids at the time, but I would imagine that that would have generated lots of discussion both in the moment and for the whole rest of the day afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. That That's a pretty great British accent. <laughs> Thank you. I'm right there with you. Yeah, no, that that's it. That's it. Yeah, that that's that experience where you sort of, it carries you into the, you know, like Einstein would say, knowledge will get you from A to B, but imagination will take you everywhere. So yeah. sort of adding that imaginative element to the experience actually makes it more robust. Yeah, that that's cool. And it's not just... I don't want to say the, the lighter topics, but you do engage with a lot of the bigger issues. I know some of the examples that were sent my way in advance of this discussion, you touch on topics in some of the missions like climate change, like ocean acidification, and some of those are in the set missions, and some of those are part of missions that can be customized using existing resources. How do you think mobile apps and just AR in general can better engage people with these important yet fairly heavy topics well th there's just so many things to unpack there as you said yeah. but i'll start with talking about our smoky bear mission that we're doing with the usda forest service uh, this started in 2019 just prior to covid we launched october 2019 with our first um, smoky bear mission it was smoky's 75th birthday so they wanted to try something new and innovative it was a partnership with Edison International, which is linked to the utility company in Southern California. Uh, and that's a pretty heavy message, like wildfire safety. Oh, yeah. 
And what happened was when COVID hit, all of a sudden, this idea just became genius <laughs> because <laughs> now players can play a mission. There's ways you can set up missions where players can play them from home. You don't necessarily have to play at the park. And it really got big. I mean, Betty White post tweeted about it and everybody really? loved Betty White. Yes. Yeah, I said, even you're saying really. Well, imagine everyone in LA, they're going, really? <laughs> <laughs> One tweet from Betty and you're off to the moon. Yeah. And Basfro hopped on board and posted it and their um, mission conservation site. And yeah, they had thousands of players nationally. And so for all of us, I mean, COVID was a crazy time and it's still a crazy time, but you, you know, so who knows if it would have happened outside of COVID, but it brought to everyone's attention the idea that AR gaming can be used for something as serious as wildfire safety. So we are now gearing up for Smokey Bear 2.0 that'll be launching this September. And it is going to be, again, primarily focused in the Southern California market. And Edison has doubled their support this year. But we are offering, we are planning to make it nationwide because it's a play from home mission. But we're really working with a lot of the schools in Southern California. And it's that, that 3D piece because three-dimensional learning opens up the mind. I mean, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I, I was in school. I, I always needed to do something, move, you know, in order to really get it. Yeah. Like I, I love the labs in chemistry because if someone was just up there talking, I never had a clue what he was saying. But then when I did the lab, I was like, oh, cool. I, you know, I remembered it. So that's what AR does for people is Suddenly, like in the Smoky Bear mission, you've got a fire that appears in your, your view, whether you're in the classroom or out there, there's a fire and there's water buckets and there's newspapers and things, you know, shovels. And you have to do interact with these things to solve the challenge. Well, for players that are kinesthetic, like, like I was, they're going to remember how to put out a fire compared to if someone just tells them. You know, they've got a little fancy slogan to try to help people remember, but the AR adds that kinesthetic element, Ian. So, so I think that's an example to go back to your question of heavier topics. You know, now if we go to climate change, I, I think I cannot underscore enough how valuable this kind of approach is going to be in climate change. Because one of the things that we want kids to do in STEM learning is to analyze data. Well, if you're analyzing someone else's data, you're not that engaged. You need to own <laughs> no. it. And, and with a platform like this, you can go out, measure temperatures, make observations, and record all of them, collect your own data. So we're also looking at, um, we've been in conversations with NASA about a partnership with GLOBE, uh, which is really becoming the go-to place for citizen science. They have all kinds of protocols for, for entering information about climate change and other observations that players can make. So our hope is that players will be able to meaningfully contribute data into GLOBE in order to really feel like they're making a difference. Because kids these days are so darn smart and they, they want to really be part of the solution. So creating a global gaming network like this allows kids to become part of a, a larger network and, you know, co collect data that could perhaps 
help scientists solve challenges around climate change or at least help do something because we all want to feel like we can contribute you know of course one of the tenets of effective climate change education is to focus on solutions we know what the problems are there's no point in harping on the problems at least if you're going to harp on the problems give a solution give us at least a starting point of what we can do and of course, you've just explained that contributing actual data, it's a form of citizen science and the data potentially could be used. That's pretty empowering stuff. Yeah, exactly. And with climate change accelerating at the rate it is, people are concerned around the globe. So we're envisioning basically a, a Pokemon Go for for climate change. I think we have underestimated for a long time, we as adults, the power of games to bring people together to collaborate, to exchange ideas, to explore, discover, to feel empowered. And so we need to harness the goodness in games to help us be part of the solution for some of these really challenging and very serious issues. Hear, hear. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. The next challenge is to spot the differences between the various oaks. Apparently three species grow along this path. Another big component of this, and you touched on this when you mentioned how during COVID you had stay-at-home options. And that's just, I think, one of the many ways that you've made Agents of Discovery really accessible for people. And that includes people who don't perhaps have the resources to have a data plan on their phone, don't have access to the internet while they're out at a park or a green space. So what are some of the other ways that you've put this together so that it's accessible to many, many people? Well, certainly, you know, diversity and inclusion have been fundamental founding principles of the platform. And we implemented many of them very early, like in 2016, when we had our first mission set up on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., because there's a lot of hoops you have to jump to to do that. Uh, so we're available in multiple languages. At this point, um, English, Spanish, and French. Uh, but that certainly makes it more inclusive. We have voice to text. And mission makers can create their missions in their language of choice and players can play them in their language of choice. So there's lots of missions now where, that are available in multiple languages and players can just self-select. Um, then to your point, uh, once you have the mission downloaded to your device, you don't need to be connected to the internet in any way to play. It's just on your phone because your geolocation services work offline. Yeah. So, you know, it makes it really great to be able to do that. This technology also works with a wide variety of devices. You don't necessarily have to have the latest, greatest phone to enjoy this kind of tech. So, you know, most everyone does have a phone. The numbers are staggering of households yeah. in both the U.S. and Canada have access to a mobile device. So it's very inclusive in that way. And I know in feedback we're getting. We're working a lot with the city of Carson, which is, you know, a very challenged community in just south of LA. And they are finding that the kids love this. They're they're asking for it because it it's something they relate to. Like we're gonna do a game. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so we're actually in the process of doing an evaluation with them, particularly focused on reaching African-American audiences with the platform. But I can say the anecdotal feedback that we have received has been extremely positive. They've been working with us now for four years. So the kids tend to show up at the day camp saying, can we do a mission? <laughs> you know, it's just sort of, it's fun. And fun is so important. We need, we need the kids having fun out of doors and wanting to do more. So, yeah. So I think those are some of the main features, Ian, off the top of my head, but we, we certainly are all about um, diversity and, and inclusiveness. For sure. Looking ahead, as we often do on this podcast, for regular listeners, you know that we often end by talking about the future. One could argue that mobile apps and AR could be making in-person interpreters and educators obsolete. I have a personal stake in that because that was my entry point into environmental education, park-based experiential interpretation. What's your take on that? Well, it's an excellent question. And I mean, we have said, it's an old saying, and I'm sure most of your listeners have heard it, but this is about allowing the educator to be the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage. That's it. So, you know, I know you've heard that. That's an old one, but I don't believe that, of course, I'm very much a people person. I I don't believe that anything can replace the hands-on educator that can use this as a tool. One of the things, though, that is a sad trend is the cutbacks in the number of interpreters in parks, and we're seeing this. I'm a little more in tune with what's happening in the States and in Canada in this regard, but when budgets get tight, interpretation tends to take a hit. And so being able to have something like this in more remote regions can be really valuable because people can self-serve you know, 24, 7, 3, 6, 5. And a lot of young, you know, we were talking about digital natives, they prefer, they're more comfortable with being able to self-serve. So I think, you know, educators can use it for situations like that, for areas they're not going to be able to reach. We're just, we're hearing that a lot. Like I know with City of Tacoma, they're saying, wow, we're so glad we've got this on our nature trails because we don't have any staff out there anymore and we're not going to. So, oh, yay, people can, can self-serve. Whereas at the nature center, you know, where you're doing more active programs, you might not need something like this. But I, I hope it will never replace edu- educators. And that's certainly not the intention. I, I just would love to see parks adding more and more interpreters. Well, yeah, I mean, the cutback discussion is a, a whole other topic we could get into. And we just see it more and more. And yeah, I could see somebody who's on the fence about staffing and saying well you know what we do have this ar that covers a lot of that ground let's just go with that we'll save money we'll divert it otherwise that may very well happen but i agree with you and i can't be unbiased in saying this because as i said it was my original entry point into this field of work but i still think there is of course great value in having that guide and maybe as you said guide on the side not sage on the stage maybe it's a matter of go out into the field and consult the nature guide based on your experiences with a mobile app or with AR. Maybe the guide isn't necessarily right beside you at all times. Maybe they're at the trailhead. Maybe they're back at the nature center. Maybe they're roaming around the park, checking in with people to say, hey, have you done the challenge, the AR challenge on this trail? Do you have any questions about it? Do you want to know where else you can find this species of mushroom? Maybe that's where it's going. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if I were still, I, like you, started way back at the Devonian Botanic Gardens in Edmonton, the University Botanic Gardens, with my environmental education when I was a university student. And I, I'm thinking uh, if I had this technology, I could have really used it because a mission can be a great way of doing either formative or summative assessment of a lesson. So, you know, sometimes the kids just need a break from you talking at them or from them talking with each other. So you might right. do a whole bunch of cool activity around the garden and then they can do a mission and that could potentially assess, you know, what did they learn? What are the areas that they still need more instruction on? This is kind of more, maybe for more formal type of field trips, but this kind of technology allows for what we call organized chaos, where everybody's kind of doing their own thing, but at the back end, you can really track what they're doing. So I think yeah. there's a place for environmental educators. I just, when I think about how I might have used it, had I had it back in the day, <laughs> in prehistoric time. In prehistoric time. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoor.com learningstore.ca So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent or just a general nature geek there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there Ian? Definitely. Thanks Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favourite podcast app. You're pretty sure you found Interior Life Oak California blue oak and Oregon white oak, but you bring a few leaf samples along just to double check at home. I'll admit the notion, and I'm speaking simply for myself here, the notion of using AR and using mobile apps to connect kids with the outdoors, I was hesitant to in coming into it. And this was years ago when I first learned about it. And I've gradually been able to see the value in it. And while I, of course, would not want to see in-person interpreters and guides replaced by apps, it's hard to argue with the data about engagement and about how much more enjoyment young people are getting, and not just young people, but largely young people are getting by using these types of platforms to get outside. And ultimately, going back to where we started in this discussion, if the ultimate goal is to get people outside, get them exercising, get them oriented with their local space, all things that we talk about in environmental education. If we're achieving that, how we do it is less important than getting to the finish line. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. I think, you know, if it, if it's the studies are showing, I, I'm just thinking of so many things. Like I, I know that the director of California State Parks Education was telling me they actually have, you know, cases now happening where they'll say, well, we have a guided tour at 11 o'clock. And the parents are saying, well, my child would actually prefer like a self-guided experience. Do you have anything where we can self-guide? <laughs> and it's just, you know, I, I think you and I would, would always love to go to a guided tour and, you know, yep. I'm the type that would pepper the ranger with questions, but they're getting asked that fairly regularly. So it's just, we, we kind of, if we're going to accomplish our goal, as you're saying, and we have to go with what is without judging it and thinking it should be what it was when we were younger, we wish it were, it just kind of the, the saying, everyone's saying it is what it is. Yeah. And so making sure that we have those tools that for the, the child that is asking that, like for self-guided, that there is an answer for that. And that's just it. Approaching it with that open mind, without judgment. It is hard because I even think about, and I, you mentioned about digital immigrants being born before 74. I was born a fair bit after that, and I still consider myself largely a digital immigrant, and I still hearken for the quote-unquote good old days without <laughs> any thought of having a screen. But I also, I see the value. I really do. And I'm just so glad that we had this discussion. And of course, there's so much more we could get into, but I really appreciate your taking the time today to help us dig into not just the Agents of Discovery platform, but the bigger questions surrounding the use of engaging people, particularly young people, with the outdoors in a meaningful way, using the technology that they are familiar with. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Ian. And maybe in the future, we can do a deep dive on some of the tech that is coming. I was thinking we've been talking a lot about the past and the present. It'd be fun to have a conversation about the future. <laughs> So, but it's been great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat with you today. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. With two challenges down, you decide to pause this mission for a little while and set yourself a personal challenge. Walk in complete silence until you see signs of at least two species of mammals. To start with, there's gotta be a Western gray squirrel around here somewhere. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terian. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. Oh, yeah. Sorry. What were you saying about Mr. Bateman? I was just saying I, I've always admired his work, both on the canvas and otherwise. Exactly. Well, he is so passionate about engaging kids with nature.
and it was really very much, you know, listening to all of his talks because I was coordinating yeah. everything for a decade. I ended up in the front of the audience and I really drank the Kool-Aid about that it, it's so important that young people get to know their the names. It's not just generally getting yep. to know, but in Mr. Bateman's philosophy, it's getting to know the names of your neighbors of other species.